Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Devo Maheshwara, Guru Sakshat Param Brahma, Tasmai Sri Gurve Namaha, Tasmai Sri Gurve Namaha, Tasmai Sri Gurve Namaha, Ombur Bhuvaswaha, Tat Savitur Varenyam, Vargo Devasya Di Mahi, Dioyona Prachodayat. Arihi Om. Jai Gurudev. Jai. So, Govindas, welcome back to Yogaville. So nice to have you here. Such a gift to be here, my brother. Thank you so much. I was here at the end of May. I think it was Memorial Day weekend, and here we are, early December, mid-December, and I'm back. And I uh, flew straight from India to come here, and what a wonderful place to land. I've been just smiling the whole time. India is so in your face and so loud and so many people. And I landed here and it's just so quiet and with nature and, and, and so incredibly peaceful. So thank you for welcoming me again. Yeah, thank you for coming. Uh, yeah, I wanted to start by asking you about India. So you're just in India for a few weeks. Any reflections, anything to share about this experience? Yes. Well, you know, I believe this is my 21st or 22nd time in India. I started going to India in 1999 and I've been almost every year. I think I missed once or twice when one of my children were born. And then, of course, a couple years during the pandemic, a couple times I went twice in a year. This year is actually twice in a year. And this pull is just for me so strong just to, to keep coming back and diving into the, the infinite wealth of, of bhakti and devotion that's so present everywhere you look. And this time again, it was, it was tremendous. I, I bring a group typically and we do a retreat in a couple different cities. One is Rishikesh up in the foothills of the Himalayas. And then we spend a week there and then we go down to Vrindavan, which is a few hours south of Delhi, which is the land of of Krishna, Radha and Krishna. Um, Rishikesh is said to be the world capital of yoga. And Vrindavan is said to be the world capital of Kirtan Hmm. and Bhakti. So they're two very special, special holy places and... Um, my cup is filled. I just feel so just filled up by the uh, Mother Ganga and all of the sadhus and, and this spiritual culture that even though so much of India has changed, the spiritual culture is still very much alive. You go to the big cities and they're racing to be like the West. You know, it's, it's, it's very materialistic, but you go to these holy places and, you know, the central focus is 
is self-realization. The, uh, the central focus is connection with God, with the Supreme. And you get that. You, you touch that. And to, you know, many teachers say, you don't need to go to India. And on some level, I, I do agree with that. Um, because you can get everything right here from your sadhana. But to experience this, this ancient living culture where the whole of yoga comes from, I myself have found it tremendously beneficial in my own personal practice. And to be with sadhus and saints that have uh, devoted and dedicated their whole life to these practices, something I think just happens by osmosis, just by being around it, and, and that we can get a deeper understanding of how to live and walk this path. And the food's pretty darn good, too. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of meals do you like to eat there? Well, you know, we, of course, do 100% vegetarian, sattvic vegetarian. So most of what we're doing is not too spicy because you go to restaurants in India, it's so spicy and I'm very sensitive to spicy. So, you know, we have our own chefs preparing food that isn't um, too spicy for the Western tummy. And, you know, especially in a town like Vrindavan where the cow is worshipped, the cow is sacred. You know, in America, I don't really eat much dairy except ghee. But in Vrindavan, I feel that the dairy there is like medicine. It, it's, 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 for me, I feel it's, it's healing, tremendously healing. So uh, I really relish in, in taking in the dairy there and knowing that it's coming from these cows that are treated with such mm. tremendous love. Mm. I haven't been to India, but it, it seems that there's... Um an awareness of the importance of spiritual life, even in maybe the w more Western aspects, that it can still possibly be felt. Whereas in this country, that's not always the case as much. Like the, the spirituality just pervades their culture. This is, this is the sense I get. You could tell me if it's right. It's or, absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. And what I love is, is just recognizing and seeing that this is how people live, that there is a focus on God always. And even the business owners, before they start their day and open up their doors to let people in, what do you see them doing? Is they're doing arti to their deities and doing their puja and offering incense and flowers and candle light to their deities to remember that all of it is God. All of it, everything has the sacred within it. And that old saying, not my will, but thy will be done, I think is very uh, central within the whole culture is that people really do understand that a lot more than in our culture, you know, people, I think a tendency in our culture and certainly not everyone, but 
people write off spirituality and the presence of God. And they believe that we are in control of it all. And this is the messages and the conditioning that we've gotten. But there, I think there's a presiding awareness of God's presence and, and that Ram is the doer or God is, is doing it all and we're just instruments. May we be instruments of that higher consciousness. I'm wondering, is that a foundation of humility? Is that what that, what that is? Is that taking credit seems to be inappropriate because there's this awareness that even for the businessman who's very successful, that uh, <laughs> the, I didn't create myself, you know, and there were so many factors outside of my control that led me to this place. So I'm wondering, is that, is that what exists, the foundation of humility? Yes, I do believe that. I believe in whatever you would want to call it, God realization, that we remember how we're just a speck of dust. And yet we have a tremendous amount of empowerment as well too, to live a, a, a certain way that we want to live. But I do believe when we recognize the presence of God is everywhere and isn't everything naturally, a symptom of that is becoming humble. Absolutely. And I think you see that in people. And it's as simple as if you get a tuk-tuk ride from here to there, and you pay the tuk-tuk driver 100 rupees, which is a dollar and 20 cents. The first thing he does is he takes the money and he puts it to his heart. Mm. Or if somebody uh, at a hotel carries, one of the workers carries your bags from your room down and you say, you know, thank you so much. The first thing they do is they put their hands on their heart. And this is common all over the country. We don't experience that here so much. Some people live in that way, but it's very rare. There, the majority of people are living in that way. I even think about how common it is for athletes to thank God when you know they're giving their victory speech or whatever it is, right? And I wonder the power that's behind that. Um, did that lead them to the place that yeah, they that they got success. to their success, yeah. right? And just this this practice, this way of life of seeing God in everything, you know. Once you you taste it, you know, it's it's like the difference between living fully and maybe not living fully. Right. Is that how and you how, how can it? you turn yeah. your back from it once you've mm. tasted that? And, you know, that taste comes in so many different ways for different people, whether that's, um, you know, through doing meditation or spiritual practices, or that comes from being very ill and sick, or from a breakup. Or from a divorce, you know, something, some massive uh, difficulty in your life. People have 
big spiritual awakenings from these types of things. Once you've tasted that presence of spirit, of love, of God, of mm-hmm. synchronicity, of, of consciousness, your life will never be the same after that. And interesting enough, you know, in India, like, and again, not everywhere, but many, many places, on every single corner, there's temples everywhere, big temples, small temples, temples out at trees. You see these murtis, you know, temples, whether it's a temple for Shiva or Durga or Hanuman or Krishna or Kali or Ganesh. I mean, everywhere you look is an image of God. And that helps us to remember the business owners, you know, maybe it's called Sri Ram Taylors or, um, you know, uh, Durga Mai grocery store or, you know, the, the, these, the names and forms of God are everywhere. And we don't have that. We have actually made our country so that isn't present. Because naturally, you know, America is a melting pot and everyone is welcome here in that sense. Um, Not saying people aren't welcome in India as well too, but the presiding consciousness is is a Hindu um, religion. And in many areas, of course, Muslim as well too. So, but it's very different here. We don't have the the images of God, and it's it's almost even frowned upon. It seems as though in our our country, mm-hmm. because people don't like to see other people's images of God. You know, I mean, even look at what's happening in the world right now. So, for someone who lives in Western culture. Is thinking, well, I want to live with God more. Yeah. I want to experience this. In this culture where maybe it's not as supported, what might you, you say to direct them to experiencing this connection with God more often? Well, I, I think one thing that can help is turn your home into a temple. You know, keep an altar, a puja, or many altars in different parts of your home. Keep your home very clean. And recognize, take your shoes off before you come into your home. Every morning when you wake up, do your arti and pujas in front of your deities. Light your incense. And, and, and on one level, these are all just rituals, yeah? And you can certainly get lost in the rituals. But if you're using these rituals in the right way, these rituals help you to wake up to that presence of love and that presence of God. And how can we experience it in the world? I mean, you know, my, my guru, Neem Karoli Baba, it's, he says very simple, love everyone. Because love is that God and love are the same thing, is Mm. my belief. Love everyone, serve everyone, and 
remember that God is everywhere and everything, omnipresent. Treat people with kindness and respect because in everyone's heart lives that light. Temper our own tendencies towards judging everyone and everything and being critical of everyone and everything and allow ourselves to love and serve each other. We've gotten so lost in our our judgmentalness and our criticalness of, of others that are different than us. Feels like a way of life almost. It's a way of life and, and our complaining about everything. And we've we've gotten so lost in it that you like you said, it's just become our our natural way of life, but it doesn't have to be. You know, spiritual work is about, you know, recognizing that this monkey mind doesn't have to guide our lives, that we can be guided from a deeper place within. And that's a that's a lifetime of spiritual work. And training ourselves, and that's that's what what yoga is all about. Uh, you're reminding me the other day I had an experience. I was uh, leading a short meditation, and one of the things that I almost always say is that you know, for the next few minutes, you don't need to have an opinion about anything. And after the meditation, uh, one of one of the people said that really impacted me to to just have permission to not have an opinion she's like thank you and i just felt how something within her was just you know and uh yeah i don't know the practice of that is so powerful for me as i get caught in my judgments and my opinions of things and it's it's like this body jumping into a body of fresh water or something, <laughs> just reminding myself that you don't need to. Yeah. There's a lot of freedom in that because our own opinions are, you know, and, and just our ego and judgments, this is, this is our, it's a prison. Even this is what Krishna talks about in the Bhagavad Gita, the, the prison of the ego. If that's where we live, if that's where we reside, we, we live in such a limited way where everything we see is clouded and colored by our, our, our perceptions are clouded and, and, and colored by our, our judgments. But if we can drop into that deeper place of love and wisdom within ourselves and live from that place, we can begin to I believe, get outside of that jail cell and really experience that, what you said, that, that presence of God in our everyday life. And this is, this is the greatest treasure. This is the greatest wealth. This, well, you know, wealth is not a big bank account and fancy cars. This is the greatest wealth that we can experience in a human be- as a human being. Feeling of love. That feeling of love and that recognition of God. There's uh, maybe a doubt that it can pervade more often 
you know, or even all the time. Mm. Maybe it's common to have, you know, very specific experiences of love uh, in a person's life. And they've, in a way, maybe they feel so special, these experiences, that to open up to experiencing it more of the time or all of the time yeah. feels that maybe it's, in, it's insulting to those mm. special, precious moments. And special, precious people. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been taught, and this is a beautiful Albert Einstein quote about this, is that we need to expand our circle of love beyond just our families and begin to welcome all beings into our circle of love and compassion. That's the essence of the quote. It doesn't go exactly like, it's not word for word what I just said. But I think that's that's the practice. That's the spiritual practice. And to live in a more selfless way. And, you know, is it possible to live like that all the time? No, I, I certainly don't live like that, but my, that's a practice. And when we practice, we, we, if we really practice, we get a little bit better. And there's more of those moments and more people that we can just recognize their beauty as a soul. I think I've heard you say, you know, the essence of spiritual practice can be summed up in two words, let go. And I'm feeling that in this conversation that we're, that we're having. If that is, that is the way, in a way, the, the trigger to connect with God, connect with love, this remembrance of let go. But what is that? What does let go even mean? What are we letting go of? Yeah. That's the key. We need to get really clear. What are we letting go of? What I see, we're letting go of attachment to our stories of how we think things should be, who we think we are as a body, as, you know, our thoughts, our emotions. Each moment, our agendas, let go of all these things and just allow, meet life as it is in each moment without our judgments, our opinions, and be with life just as it is in each moment. And whatever shows up, Massage it with love and compassion. Serve it. Be a beneficial presence for it. Mm. Be a beneficial presence for whatever's here now. For whatever's here now. Be a beneficial presence for whoever you're with face-to-face in that moment or whatever you're working on in that moment. In the same way I see you, I saw you with your kids last night. We were sharing dinner and, and you were such a beautiful presence for your children 
just that love for your children. Now, why do we cut that off towards others? Mm. And not only cut it off, but so typically hate others and judge others. Well, because people are different than us. I think this is the, the this is for me, I think the one of the, the most important teachings is how can we love other people and serve other people and be a beneficial presence for other people when they're really different than us? When they believe different things. There's so much division in this world right now. What comes to mind for me immediately is by recognizing that this is what my soul really wants. Yeah. This is the natural state of the soul. There's so much division, whether it's political division or religious division or, you know, and we, we can get so easily lost in that. And that's like the climate of America right now is this division. Are we going to be a part of that? Are we going to be a part of the solution? And I believe the solution is, is to love everyone. Yeah. We're even just switching from the we to the I. Yeah, Am I going to be a part of that? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It occurs to me that belief is really important. Like, what do I believe? Because I think about the, the family and the love that I can uh, show, express to my family, to my tribe, and then maybe see someone outside who is different as, you know, uh, anti against this love. Couldn't possibly extend my love to them, too, wherever the borders are. And so it's like that's a belief, I think, around my capacity you know, and I think about Ram Das and Neem Karoli Baba with this, and Ram Das shares that when he was ready to go back to America, you know, and I think he asked Neem Karoli Baba, "What should I do?" And he said, you know, "Love everyone and tell the truth." Mm-hmm. And Ram Das right away had um, a, a reaction. Where it's, tell the truth, okay. Maybe I'm pretty good at that and I can keep going with that. But loving everyone. Whew, he saw my judging mind. It's so powerful. This tendency to just, to judge. And, and I think he said, you know, I can't. I can't. And Neem Karoli Baba responded, Ramdas, love everyone. And tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And so in that, he, he, he expanded. There was expansion there, right? Yeah. And that's where his teaching came from years later when he really was able to sift through this teaching that from up here, I can't love everyone. Because if I'm living in my ego, if I'm attached to all of my stories, judgments. I can't love everyone because what does the ego do? Ego do it judges everyone, competes with everyone. It divides. 
But when I come to hear, which he started to call the soul or loving awareness, from here, when I'm identified with that place in me that I am love, from here I can. It's a real possibility. I can love everyone because that's the natural state of here. That's the natural state of the soul. That's the natural state of loving, aware, of loving awareness. So that's the work of a lifetime, is to take that leap of faith from here to here. And when we notice we're living from here, governed by here, that's what the letting go is all about. And as we begin to let go, we can slide back down to here. For me, I think it's also really important to remember that loving everyone does not mean being nice all the time. Yeah, that's true. It's an important distinction. To me, loving everyone is, is embodying this love as often as possible and doing what feels right, trusting in that love. And sometimes that's saying no, you know? Sometimes or that's no. having very strong boundaries. Yeah. Look at parenting. I know your kids are young, but as they get old older you know my kids are 8 and 13 we have to create very strong boundaries because if we say yes all the time we are feeding habits and tendencies that may not be beneficial for them and we say no as an act of love which they can't understand and they're going to fight and scream and you know, get extremely upset and cry about, but it's an act of love. So, yes, it's not always being nice. It's not always saying yes to everything and everyone. And that love can have very strong boundaries within it as well, too. Yeah. And I think that's good news in a way. <laughs> yeah. Because it allows for, it's a greater bandwidth yeah. for this practice Right? There's, it's not limited to my definition of love from the past or something like that. Yes. Yeah. It's not just all sugar, right? Yeah. Right. I want to go back to your touching on free will, I think, yeah. and I'm just curious your, your take on this or this in the Indian culture, this uh, not, my, not my will, but thy will, God. Yeah. Right? This, is, this is all you. And I think this is a place where Maybe there's a good deal of confusion around this. Um, and, yeah. and I think it really is tricky. You know, I try to sort this out myself sometimes. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering where you stand on this. I don't know mm. in all of my meditation, but I heard a quote once from a rabbi that has guided my life in relation to this. And the quote is, pray as if everything depends on God but live as if everything depends on you. Mm. I'll say it again. Pray as if everything depends on God and live as if everything depends on you. And that's, you know, there's something so much bigger. There's the supreme force and controlling energy of the universe that's called God or Krishna or Ram or what, again, Shiva, whatever name you want to call it. And yet, 
we have the ability to make choices in moments. Are we just complete puppets? And that we think we're making choices, but in every moment, spirit is, is guiding us, even the, the littlest things? Or are we really making choices? Well, live as if everything depends on you. Okay, I'm going to make the most conscious choices and optimal choices that I can in my relationships, in my diet, in my work, in my spiritual practices. Because I understand this thing called karma, this law of cause and effect, that my choices, there's an effect that comes with each choice and action that I take in my mind and even on a subtler level in my thoughts. But I have to take care of the mind as well too on the subtler level. Yet, as I'm doing this in each moment, I'm just surrendering mm-hmm. to the lotus feet of my guru. Mm-hmm. I'm not my will, but thy will be done. I'm surrendering to God through it all. And so I experience it as a balancing act between the two. <laughs> Do you have a deeper sense, though, on this idea of, of being a puppet and whether or not it's true? Well, I'm a bhakta, which is a, a bhakti yogi, a devotee of the Lord. So that's my focus, is surrendering, 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 surrendering. But the difference is, it's... Is it me surrendering or is it an acknowledgement that it's already surrendered? (laughs) I don't know. That's, I think you could go either way. Am I actually surrendering or is God playing through me and that surrendering is happening from a higher level, but I think I'm doing it. Mm. It does feel like this is, this is meaningful, right? In some, in some way, and I, I don't know if this is right, but, you know, why? Like, why all of this? Yeah. Why this? Probably the best answer that comes to me is that it's some sort of experiment. You know, I was in Rishikesh meditating on the Ganga River where pilgrims have come for thousands of years to sit on her banks with the intention of self-realization. And as I was sitting and looking out in a moment, I looked out and I said, this all just looks like a movie set to me the physical reality in this moment. This material world, this this maya that underlying it all is that absolute presence. And it's just bubbling up into this 
material world of form. I mean, Krishna and the Bhagavad Gita over and over and over again. The scriptures, they talk about it all. That difference between what's real and what's unreal. Capital R versus lower R. This world of form is the lower R real. That which is constantly changing and in flux. What's capital R real is that supreme presence underneath it. The underlying beingness through it all. Don't get too attached to what's just relatively real. Keep your focus always on what's absolutely real. Mm. And that's the path to freedom and joy. But as you just said, and, and especially having kids and being in relationship with a family and children and wife and partnership and We have to engage in it on some level, fully, with all our hearts. And yet, at the same time, recognize this is just the play of consciousness. Yeah. To me, that's where the gratitude and the appreciation comes in. Because it is possible. It is what, what's happening. And we can flow back and forth from the small R to the big R. Yeah. And it's fine. Yeah. And there's no problem. And we must let ourselves experience all of it. You know, the, the, the material world life that everything that comes with the dualities within it, the happiness, the sadness, the, you know, on and on that the duality and what comes from that is suffering, a lot of suffering and pain. I know myself, I mean, I don't know if you've experienced yet, but especially as my kids have gotten older, there's a tremendous amount of pain in parenting when they stop listening to you or stop um, allowing you to give them affection or, or want as now, you know, I have a son that's 13 years old and teenager years, like they look at you like you're some, an alien or something. What, like, what, what are you doing? And what do you know about anything? Mm. And the pain that comes with that is so deep. Mm. Yet we need to just let that stuff work on us. You know, I, I guess what I'm saying is we need to let go of our attachment to that it's going to be all bliss all the time and that we're going to be able to live in this God consciousness all the time. And Ramdas was given this message and teaching. I'm not sure who actually said it, but they said, Ramdas, you're so good at living in that God consciousness. Try being human. And I think that's what we all loved about Ram Dass so much was his humanity. So I guess we need to let life just work on us and, and uh, 
let the pain, let ourselves experience the pain of being human as well too. Take the curriculum. Yeah, be in the curriculum of, of life. And this is how we move through our karma. And I, I, and that your karma becomes your dharma. And your dharma becomes your karma. That whatever is here, the, this is the curriculum. And my dharma is that I'm going to just work with it the best that I can. But the karma of it is that it's going to Oh, we're going to feel a lot, and it's not always going to be pretty. So it seems that a uh, big aspect of your dharma is, is bhakti, kirtan. And you're getting ready to host this workshop this weekend. Mm. Why? why? Why do you choose to do this? You know, the first time I ever heard Kirtan, it was actually in 1995 in a doc, Ayurvedic doctor's office. And he was reading my pulse. And I heard Kirtan being played in the background. And something happened. I just heard this music as a prayer. And I said, whatever this is, I want more of this. I just felt like it, the sounds of it connected me to such a just deep, ancient place within myself. Now, cut back 25 years when I was a kid, born in the 70s to a Jewish family, didn't really want so much Judaism in my life. I just wanted to be a soccer athlete. I didn't grow up in a really Jewish area. I really pushed it away for a good majority of my life. But when we would go to synagogue for the high holy days and the cantor would start singing, I remember as a young boy, six, seven, eight years old, I would cry and feel God's presence in those moments. Feel something tremendously sacred is happening right now. So those were like the seeds that were planted, the original seeds of love for sacred music. And then I heard Kirtan 20 plus years later. And it just, it felt so right. But in 1995, there was no Spotify. There was no Apple Music. There was no YouTube. You couldn't just type in Kirtan. So it wasn't ready, readily available. And then cut to a few years later, when I was introduced to Ram Das, which then led me to Bhagavan Das, Krishna Das, Jayutal. And I remember being at Jiva Mukti Yoga Center in New York City. And they were playing a Krishna Das cassette. 
cassette and not CD. Um, in the yoga class, and I asked the yoga teacher, well, what is this? And she said, oh, this is Krishna Das. We have the tape in our bookstore. And that was when it really, when I was introduced to really Krishna Das, Bhagavan Das, Jayutal, I, I said, this is the way I want to spend this incarnation. I want to completely immerse myself mm. in this form. Isn't in that this, powerful? In this spiritual practice, absolutely. Mm. I was like, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to spend my life. And that's what's inspired so many trips to India is really going and just sitting in the temples and chanting with these kirtanwalas that have, were born into this and understand really what is this all about. And where I am right now in my understanding of what is this kirtan all about It's a couple things. One, it's celebrating what we keep talking about. It's celebrating the presence of God. Mm. It's the celebrating the joy and love for the Supreme. One. And two, it's a call out for mercy. Mm. Mm. It's a call out for mercy and grace and help and a yearning, a deep, deep yearning. So on one level, it just seems like music. But it's very different, you know. My kids listen to pop music, you know, and in the car we play a game where anytime we drive, everybody gets to choose one song. Yeah. So I listen to a lot of hip hop from my son and a lot of pop music from my daughter. And kirtan is very different. As a matter of fact, I don't even really consider, even though it's music, it's not music. It's a prayer. It's a prayer that uses music as its form. And every culture uses music as prayer. Just something about this call and response form of it, the, the instruments that are being used, it just agrees with me so deeply just feels so right. It feels like that big yes. So that's the path I've been walking. Hmm. Are you looking forward to this weekend? Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. Yeah, so we're doing a kirtan training where I'm going to be I'm sharing the tools and techniques of harmonium along with, you know, 
the mantras and the gods and goddesses, but most of our time will be on the harmonia. And the beauty of this, I believe, is the simplicity that you don't have to be a musician. A lot of people come to these kirtan trainings, which I've been leading around the country, different yoga studios, that you have to be this great musician. But in a weekend, someone that has never put their hands on an instrument before, they're gonna walk out. We start on Friday, we finish Sunday. They're gonna walk out on Sunday with four or five chants that they're gonna be able to play. Hmm. Kirtan can be incredibly, incredibly simple and incredibly, incredibly complicated as well too, depending on where you are with it as in your own musical evolution. But I think that the key of the essence of it is that you can start to bring kirtan into your own spiritual practice, meaning you do your puja, you sit in meditation, you do some asanas, and you get on your harmonium and chant as a part of your daily sadhana. And something about kirtan, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a nectarous quality, there's a juice to it, there's a, a liquid feeling to it. It's music. Music does something to human beings. So to add that into your daily sadhana, my feeling, it's, that's a really beautiful thing. And, and, and it's a prayer. Sometimes we forget. It's bhakti. It's devotion. It's that celebrating God. It's that asking for help. So to add that prayer into spiritual practice, especially for Westerners, I think is very valuable. Mm. It seems that there's this, this voice that is yearning to be released and expressed. Mm. And this is a way to do that. Yeah. This voice, this voice of love, this voice of prayer, this voice of gratitude, this voice of, oh Lord, show me the way. I can't do this myself. I've tried. Every time I try, I mess it up. I, I need your assistance. I need your guidance. I'm your child, just in the way that your children need you. At less than a year and four years, they need you. They can't do it themselves. That mistaken belief that we think we can do it ourselves. Every time I try, boy, do I mess things up. So I, oh Lord, Show me the way. I need your help. It seems that there's this, this balance mm. between uh, tuning into my strength 
and totally falling to your knees, as I think you're you're talking about. But yeah. you know, I wonder about this, especially I think for maybe men in our culture. You know, the, the being strong is such a uh, big part of our identity. So it's almost scary going to this place. I think it is scary going to this place of, of, of almost complete helplessness. Yeah. You know? But it doesn't feel appropriate to me to totally dismiss the, that strength that's also given from somewhere else. It's also a gift. But the strength is beautiful that I can be a rock in this raging river. You know, there's something beautiful about the strength. But there's also a time for allowing it to fall away. And I see that, but I find that it's challenging sometimes. And crying, I think, is the best expression of that, to think about that. Like, you can feel like it's like right there, like right ahead of you, that, mm, that experience of crying. But there's some walls there that need to be broken down and it's very scary to break down those walls and cry. Yeah. Yeah, I think you know, I I lead a lot of men's circles, these sort of bhakti men's circles where we gather together as men and and talk about these types of things, exactly what you're talking about. And I think the greatest strength comes through surrender. It's like Hanuman. Where does Hanuman find his strength to lift mountains and jump over oceans? It's from Ram. It's he's moved out of his own way. So I think it's the recognition that, as you said, it's a gift. It's not his. It's not ours. It is, but it's not. It comes from that opening the portal to that divine strength. And that's how we can really be strong. But there's something about men, and, and you said, and that men, we have become doers, but we've lost the archetype of the male mystic. And that's what Lord Shiva represents. The archetype of the supreme male figure. And what's Lord Shiva doing? He's sitting up in meditation with his high eyes half closed, turned into himself. Shivoham, Shivoham, I am Shiva. I am that pure consciousness itself. It exists within me as my true nature. Why are most yoga classes filled with women in the West?
men in the West, we've, we've, what is it, wimpy or to, to live in a spiritual, compassionate, heart-centered way. Because we're in a, we live in a football culture where that's the most important thing. And, and, but again, in India, I think it's very different. The men are very much connected to prayer, puja, the seeing of the bigger, the mystical vision. And I think it's a great wake up for us men to begin to live in that way, to go deeper into our sadhana, into our meditation practice, to become more compassionate, less judgmental, more soft-hearted in our love for each other, more connected to God. And that's where we can find a deeper quality of strength. Right. Where we can, you know, do tremendous, tremendous things because we become that channel through which great spirit can begin to live and act and work through us. I'm wondering if real strength and courage is an acknowledgement that there's always more. That's, when we think it's us, it's a limited strength. When we know it's not us, that's where I believe in unlimited strength. The impossible can become possible. That's what Hanuman represents. What can't be done can be done. When we become the servant of God instead of trying to become God. When we Lack of thinking that we're the best or the master or in control and let God, let Sri Ram be the master and I'm just serving. See, it's why back to what we spoke about earlier. For me, I'll say in my experience, what's very important, what allows me to do this more powerfully, more effectively, is for me, it's acknowledging that this is already how it is. So it's actually like, yes, either one, if I am surrendering or it's already surrendered, for me, there's way more strength and effectiveness on acknowledging that it is already surrendered. Because then I'm just, I'm tuning into what is. Yeah. That is already the case. This, that's my truth. And I, th- I love that. And, and yet, at the same time, I think we need to practice surrendering. You know, before I start a program, I close my eyes and I visualize myself at my guru's feet, laying the flowers, offering that I surrender. You take over. You work through me. You speak through me. You sing through me. None of this I take credit for, not even a drop of it. Right, it's both. And I think what you're saying is, maybe I'd put it as making a ritual out of the remembrance. Yeah. 
We need these rituals. We need these rituals. We need these forms. We need these practices. Because they give us something, for lack of better words, solid to connect to. Otherwise, we just... Yeah. We're just constantly living in this. And we're not a culture that has rituals. Yeah. And I think it's Spiritual fun. Spiritual rituals. It's fun. Of course it's fun. It's really fun to start to like make a game out of your life. Like, you know, these are the practices that I'm going to do daily. Um, and each of us have the freedom to choose that and start to mold that. I think this, this idea of having a daily sadhana is like the most important thing, a daily spiritual practice whether you do 11 sun salutations or you do a daily puja or you get on your harmonium and it's something you do every day. And yes, certainly your sadhana can change through time. I know mine has. Start, you but, start with one thing that you know you want to do every day. But that becomes your doorway. That becomes your window. That becomes your portal through which the tears can come. Mm. That's for me when the tears come. Is that deep remembrance. Otherwise, the mind is so dominant and so strong. It's hard to really pray. It's hard to really remember. Because we're at the bay of this swirling energy of thought. The way I see it kind of is the structure helps me practice when there is no structure. Yeah. Daily sadhana. Daily sadhana. Yeah. Thank you so much, brother. Ah, what a beautiful conversation. Mm. Talking about things that I love to talk about. Same. <laughs> Same. Thank you. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful to be here. Hello, Sri Sadgurudev Bhagwan Ki. Jai. Jai. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this content and think others might as well, please feel free to share and subscribe.